Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Bernstein, CEO and founder of Balto, a contact center solutions provider that's raised $52 million in funding. Mark, thanks for chatting with me today. Brett, great to be here. Super excited for this conversation. If you want to go ahead, let's just kick off with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Sure. Well, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area and moved out to St. Louis for school. And I studied entrepreneurship, marketing, and psychology. A lot of people will tell you that your undergrad degree is useless. I thought it rocked and was super useful and apply all those things today. I asked a mentor of mine, if I want to start a business at one point, what is the best career to start in? And he said, sales, because you're either doing sales to win your first customers. No one's going to do it for you. You're doing sales in order to recruit talent and bring people onto your team and share your vision or you're doing sales in order to raise money, but you probably need to get good at sales. So I started at a B2B sales software company in St. Louis called TopOps. A lot of folks don't know, the people who founded TopOps that already founded Gainsight before then, a big unicorn out in the valley. And I learned a lot from that founding team. And one of the things that I experienced there is when I was in sales, I'd go in my manager's office for coaching and I'd ask him for feedback and he'd pull up the call recording and give me good feedback. And then I'd go to my call with the customer and apply none of the things I had just learned in my coaching session. And the realization was that's one thing to know what you should do. It's another thing to do what you need to do actually in real time while you're talking to the customer. And that ended up being the inspiration for Balto, the company I founded with two other founders in 2017. On the topic of inspiration, who inspires you when it comes to founders, entrepreneurs, and builders? You know, of course, there's some greats that are just very obvious, and those will be the, you know, Elon Musk's and Steve Jobs of the world. I love how Elon Musk approaches things from first principles. I love how Steve Jobs is willing to take a bet on something the consumer might not even know themselves. But maybe a little bit of an out there answer would be Leonardo da Vinci. I actually learned a good bit about him on this podcast called How to Take Over the World. Really, really awesome podcast. And they kind of covered his thinking style. And the thing that was so different or special about da Vinci is he did a lot of things. He was an artist. He was an engineer. You know, he did painting and he did sculpting, but he got bored easily and didn't finish his projects. And I think a lot of folks who are startup founders think, you know, well, if I have a lot of interests or you know, I get really excited about something and then I lose interest and I move on to the next thing. You know, that's a weakness and that means I'm going to be a bad founder. But I think the answer is it's also potentially a strength. It's also something that you can really lean into and you can use this sort of knowledge, this intelligence, this working understanding of the world across art and science and all those things in order to be a better founder. So it was really cool kind of hearing how someone did something really legendary and world-changing even though he thought in a very different way than today we would say someone who's successful thinks. You're the first person I've ever met who has listened to that podcast as well. 
How to Take Over the World. That's one of my favorite podcasts. I think Ben Wilson is just such an awesome host and it's such a great show and just so well done. So that's awesome to hear. He's a great historian as well as a storyteller. He tells the facts like they are. And he also says, and here's what I think. And it's delightful. It's enjoyable. They're not too long. And you know, when I'm kind of cycling through my podcast queue and I want a little bit of a pump up and say, I want to take over the world, I'll, I'll flip on one, one of those episodes. Did you listen to the one on Queen Elizabeth? No, that sounds interesting. It's good. I listened to it like right around the time that she passed away. And he kind of ended it with, you know, he went into it with this idea of he wanted to understand who truly has power in the UK and, and who is the authority there. And his end takeaway after all that research and all the study he did was it's the media and the newspapers and the newspapers have absolute authority and absolute control in the UK, which I thought was just a, a fascinating final takeaway there. What a take. What about Walter Isaacson's book on Da Vinci? Have you read that yet? I have Walter Isaacson's book on Elon Musk. And I'm, it's, uh, I'm looking at it now, 500 or 600 pages. So I'm going to take a deep breath, start there. Then I'm going to go to Steve Jobs and then I'll go to Da Vinci. Nice. Yeah, I'm following a very similar path. I did Elon Musk, just finished that one. It's a beast, but luckily it's like very digestible. It's kind of like reading a blog post for each chapter. And I just got the Da Vinci book over the weekend. It got delivered. So getting ready to dig into that now. But yeah, his books are big, but they're, uh, I like this style. They're easy to read. One of the things I was thinking about Steve Jobs is, you know, again, from that podcast, I just listened to it today, is how his companies like nearly all failed at one point. Like Apple was on the brink of bankruptcy. Pixar started out essentially as a computer company and they stopped shipping physical computers and said, we're going to pivot. We're going to try a software. And that didn't work. And they said, well, you know, as a last shot, let's make a movie. And you know, when Steve Jobs got fired from Apple, he also you know, started this company next basically to say, you know, I'm going to make the next computer. You all watch, you know, you kick me out of Apple, but I'm going to make an even better device. And all three of those companies were truly on the brink of failure. And, you know, I haven't listened to the Elon Musk episode yet, but I wonder, it doesn't seem like any of his companies were on the brink of failure. I guess, you know, Tesla kind of got close, but that was really a financing issue. But, you know, PayPal didn't seem like it was close. I don't know. It almost seems like Elon Musk is an easier go than most folks, but I get he'd probably disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, I think he's described it as no one would want to be him. So sounds yeah. like he would disagree with that. But I think a lot of people still would really want to be Elon Musk, even with everything that they know. And I'd probably be in that camp. I would I would take the pain, I think, to be in that position that he's in to just build and create and put things out into the world that really transform the world as we know it. Yeah, I felt myself eating my words as I said them. <laughs> I do that all the time. So you're not alone. Let's switch gears here and let's talk about Balto. And I think it's a perfect way to dive in is let's talk about low points. So you founded the company in 2017. Have you experienced any low points? Were you ever on the brink of failure? Or what was that kind of lowest point that you've reached so far? Well, you know, anybody who has been in the tech startup world for the last, you know, a couple of years felt a tectonic shift in the climate. And, you know, some folks felt it on a financing side, some folks felt it on the demand side, some felt felt it on a labor market side, some folks felt it everywhere. But certainly like the foundation upon which a lot of tech stars built their company have shifted dramatically over the last couple of years. And that has required 
every tech company, if you want to be viable, especially if you are VC backed and you know your plan is to be burning money for some period of time and your plan is to raise around some period of time, you have to switch your operating model pretty substantially. And you know we had to cut down our burn substantially. We had to you know, get our runway and say, how do we build an infinite runway? How do we become efficient enough that you know, we can persist as long as we want to and that we don't need to rely on massive amounts of VC capital in the future and that our future is in our hands. And doing that you know, meant going from you know, a massive headcount. At one point, we had 165 people in the company, and now we have about 55. And we've been able to keep that headcount for the last you know, year, and we did the difficult work in 2022. But that was excruciating. That was really, really excruciating. And I know a lot of founders have felt that, but you're not alone. And I can tell folks that once you do the difficult work and you say, hold on, we now are looking at a more finite set of resources. We need to focus. We need to focus. We need to choose a couple things. We need to do them very well. And there's nowhere to hide. Everyone needs to be executing. Every single person at the company needs to be you know, absolutely excellent at their role. And that's the only way that we're going to be able to you know, build the sort of world-changing company we want to build. Once you do that reset, the world looks a lot better. So 2022 was just a really, really tough year for us. And that's where we were going through that transformation. And 2023 has been our, our best year on record. So there is a bright spot, but, you know, boy, is the dark spot dark. As you said, many founders, or I would say most venture-backed founders, had to go through something very similar in 2022. So fortunately, you weren't alone there. When it comes to making that transition and doing that downsize, I'm sure there were a lot of lessons learned. What would you say was like the biggest lesson learned? Well, I'll say uh, the first thing was a surprise. And that was that I was truly shocked that when we got leaner, we also got better. I had thought that you make cuts and you get leaner. And I was like, crap, we're just not going to be as good. We're not going to sell as much. We're not going to build as good product. We're not going to be able to take as good care of our customers. You know, we're not going to have as good market presence because we don't have as much people. We don't have as, as you know, much resource going out there in the world. We're not going to be as good. And that turned out to be totally wrong. You know, I kind of learned that there is almost like a natural optimal size for every company, you know, depending on where you are in your stage. And when you're bigger than that natural size, you actually operate less effectively than you would if you were a smaller company. And you, know, you can promote that culture of ownership and you can promote like true excellence in every role in every department of your company. And there's fewer layers between you know, the founders and the senior management and you know, everyone else in the company. So it's not like you know, you're a shadow to anybody in the company. Everyone knows you know, who you are and that allows some of the way you think and the values that you have to permeate better throughout the culture. So I would say that was probably like one of the biggest learnings, the biggest surprise is you can get smaller and also get better. I'd also say that, you know, one of the things I learned there is that if you don't own the message, the message owns you. And I think very fortunately, we had had a lot of practice in owning the message, especially internally because we have a weekly all hands. So every single week, we've done this the entire history of the company. We bring everybody together and we give updates on what's happening in the company. The form of the all hands has shifted throughout the years, but we do it every single week, you know, without fail. And 
you know, that was an opportunity to really frame for folks what happened and what we were going to do going forward and also get people's pulse because you can't just like have a message and you can't say, you know, well, we had a cut, but you know, that's behind us now and we're just going to move forward and onward. Like people are going to be sad. People are going to be frustrated. People are going to be scared and you can't ignore that. You have to sit with that a little bit. So it really was a kind of a masterclass in balancing fear and apprehension and frustration and sadness with the really important work that we needed to do. And there was a certain point where, you know, I gave a talk to the company and I said, hey, everybody, I want you to look at the metrics that we're doing right now. I want you to look at what we've accomplished this year. We're not losing anymore. We're not losing anymore. We're winning again. And I want everyone to feel that. I want you to see it. I want you to look at what we're doing. I want you to look at this with fresh, objective eyes. We're not losing anymore. And, you know, we had to reset that narrative for folks, you know, after we did a cut, because that's how it feels. It feels like you're losing and you need to both acknowledge that while also make sure you're keeping your eyes forward and keeping people focused on the bigger mission. That's helpful context and understanding what's been going on at Vault for the last couple of years. But let's go a bit deeper into the company history. Take us back to 2017 when you were first founding the company. What was it about this problem in the contact center space that made you say, yes, that's it. I'm going to go build a company around this problem and dedicate the next 5, 10, 15 years of my life in this space? It started bit by bit. So it started just with the own personal insight of, me getting off calls after, you know, getting a lot of coaching and then saying, shoot, I didn't do any of the stuff I was coached on. And everyone who has been in sales or customer service, who's had a customer facing role has experienced it and felt it. There really is like a visceral, almost gut punch you have where you hang up the phone. And the second, the second the call is done, you know exactly what you did wrong. And you're like, why didn't I know that five seconds ago? It's almost like one of these movies where you have like a you know, guy or girl, folks are in love and one of them says something stupid and can't believe it came out of their mouth. Like that happens while you're talking to customers. So I said, that's clearly a human problem. And I actually created a, a little Excel macro for myself. So the Excel macro, I could type in a topic in the macro and I could type in implementation and it would go up and pick up my talking points, my coaching points that I had written in there for implementation and pop it up on the screen. And one of the other Balto founders, Chris Contes, had the idea and he said, Mark, what if we were able to use some sort of, you know, speech to text and automatically populate your macro? So you weren't having to type it in. It was just, you know, doing that for you. And then turns out, you know, sometimes in business, you're smart. Sometimes in business, you're lucky. I got super lucky. And it happens that my oldest childhood friend, one of the other founders, Davidson Gerard, is a freaking excellent coder and you know expert in AI. And I told him about this idea and he uh, goes online, he hooks in a couple APIs and says, hey, Mark, I just populated the speech to text into your Excel macro. Now you have uh, you know, your working program. And I think when I saw that and when Chris Contes saw that, we said, shoot, we might actually have a business here. So it started with that very human experience, that very human insight and experiencing the problem myself. And then what we said is, well, what market experiences this problem most acutely? Because I had been in the B2B SaaS world and I actually told an advisor of mine, we were starting this business. And I said, okay, I'm going to go build this product in B2B SaaS. 
And he said, maybe that's the answer, but don't just assume because you came from B2B SaaS that you should build this product for the B2B SaaS market. You should ask what market is experiencing this pain most acutely. And I did a whole bunch of market research and said, you know, I think it's the contact center where you don't have, you know, five or 10 or 20 BDRs, you know, making dials. You have hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people and always hiring, always new folks in seat, uh, very high attrition, always folks leaving. Very difficult if you have an org change or a process change or policy change to actually get that scaled to the organization. How do you get 10,000 people doing something differently? And that pain is very acute. And we realized the contact center space was where the biggest opportunity would be. Can you unpack the market research that you did to come to that conclusion? And the reason I ask, that's something that a lot of founders struggle with is choosing your market and deciding which market to go into. So what type of market research did you find and what types of steps did you take to really make that decision? You know, it actually started with almost like thinking about the problem in a matrix. And, you know, we first said, where does getting the conversation right matter the most? So where are you having a five or 10 minute conversation where that conversation is really important, where if it goes well, it's dollars in the bank. It's a new sale, a cross sell or an upsell, or it is a saved customer, someone you're know, retaining an account, or it is a complaint that is resolved and the customer doesn't leave and they're happy. Or if it doesn't go well, it's someone blasting you on Twitter, talking about how terrible your brand is, or it can even be a compliance problem. So we first kind of put it in the matrix and said, where is the conversation getting it right, the most important? And that led us to a lot of these big brands, folks you know, in the insurance industry, folks in the financial services industry that have that high customer lifetime value and also that high compliance and regulatory need and risk of getting something wrong and getting blasted out on social media. So we kind of went from almost this logical matrix to the industries. And then we said, oh, wait, so all these folks in these industries, they're essentially in, you might classify them as a formal contact center and an informal contact center. Formal meaning they call themselves a contact center. They say, this is our call center. This is our contact center informal, meaning it could be a sales floor of 500 property and casualty insurance agents, and they're all slinging deals. They might not say it's a call center, but they might say it's a sales floor, but you know, it's a high volume environment where, you know, they're having a lot of conversations that are make or break, you know, with a high customer lifetime value and also an, a compliance or, you know, a risk element. So again, we kind of fell into it. We just started looking at the problem logically saying, you know, where is this pain the most acute? Where does it matter? And then we said, oh, let's just kind of follow the breadcrumbs and find out where these people are. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. Tell us about the first paying customers and especially the big enterprise accounts. How were you able to pull that off? How'd you get them to trust you and really just give you a shot? It's super interesting. The lean startup, Eric Rees, or Eric Rees, I think it's Rees, that was one of the biggest inspirations for how we started our company and how we started going to market. 
And one of the big principles out of that book is build an absolutely minimum viable product, the most basic form of your product that solves the customer problem and do it as fast as you can and get it out there in the market and get the market to actually buy it and use it and test it and give you real feedback about what's going well and what's not so you can make your product better. And we took that to 100. We took it all the way to the end of the scale and we said, we're gonna build a demo in three weeks. So we built a demo in three weeks and we said, we're gonna start selling it right away. We're gonna demo it by calling folks up, you know, doing prospecting, booking demos, just like our sales experience taught us and saying, hey, here's our product. We're showing you a live demo. Do you wanna buy it? And of course, everyone said, no, you made this thing three weeks ago. Like, this is not a ready product. And then we would say, perfect. That actually makes total sense. We wouldn't buy it either. Tell us what's missing. What needs to change? What do you need to see different? And folks would give us ideas that they had. And they'd say, well, you got to change the UI a little bit. Or, you know, you have these kind of four custom objections that's helping out with, but I actually have different objections. Or, you know, what if the UI were a little different and it gave key points that you need to hit or need to remember? What if that were in there? Those are all the sort of things we got actually in those early days by doing those demos. And we ran that process 82 times. We got 81 no's, but the 82nd deal was our first customer and they were one user for one month for $500. And that was our first sale. And that was a really transformative experience. We did all of that over four months. So, you know, that was the sort of pipeline that just two passionate founders you know, hitting the phone where you were the build in four months is, you know, 82 demos and a closed deal. And from there, we were able to hit our, our first year sales goal of 100K. We actually did 101K and we did it with 15 days left in the year to spare. So that's, I think, probably the biggest thing is just start selling immediately, start getting feedback immediately. I think in potentially avoid free trials. We didn't do any free trials because we wanted folks to vote with their dollars and say, this actually matters. I'm not just giving you feedback because I like you or because you're my friend or my family member. I'm giving this feedback because it's real. Any metrics about growth or anything like that? Sure. I can say that in Q2, we did 148% sales of what we did year over year. What do you attribute to that growth and that success? I think, honestly, the biggest thing is not a big shift in strategy. It is execution. I think the strategy, we definitely tightened up and we focused and you know, that has helped a lot. But when you set really clear standards and really clear expectations, clear as in when folks tell you that they're booking a next step with an account, our next steps always have the same format. It is what is the action you're going to take and for the purpose of achieving what? So a next step is not you know, I'm waiting for them to get back to me. That's not something you're going to do. I guess you could say waiting is something you're doing, but that's not how we do our next steps. We say, what are you going to do? What's the action you're going to take? And what is the outcome you want to achieve from that? So everyone has a common language, a shared language. When you define all these things, next step, next meeting, last meeting, last touch, various different sales stages, milestones, forecast categories, percentages of expected win rate from each of the forecast categories, your business has a shared language around what to expect. And when something falls outside of your expectations, you're able to say, that is an outlier. Let's analyze it. So I think that actually the biggest thing 
was just execution, execution, execution. And you know, now we're a freaking execution machine. And the question is, okay, let's pick our heads up and look at the strategy again. Let's look at what's next. Let's look at the next big thing that Balta is going to bring the market. And we got some pretty exciting stuff coming out in 2024. We'll have to bring you on to talk about all that stuff, but a few other quick questions for you. When it comes to your marketing approach, how would you summarize your marketing philosophy? You know, I was actually thinking about this today. And I think the first thing where it starts is you have to ask yourself, who are you? Who is your company? Like, what are the core attributes of your company? Almost like a personality. And I think it starts there. And I think that in the age that we're in, in this digital age, social media age, 2023, 2024, I think people want to see you and they want to see an authentic you. And I, I think it's funny. I think it was, might've been time. I'm trying to remember which publication said authentic was the word of the year. That was the 2023 word of the year. And I think that rings very true in marketing. So I think if you can first figure out who you are, then the question is, how do you communicate that as effectively as possible? But first thing you got to do is figure out who you are, because then you can just kind of blabber. You can just kind of spit it out. And people will give you more grace than you might think. So then when you get your message out there, the next thing you want to be thinking about is, how do I make sure this message hits the right people? And I think that you can actually be a little bit less scalable than you might appreciate. You know, on LinkedIn, I try to connect with all of our customers, every single customer. I try to connect with everybody. I try to connect with our customers, peers, and partners. And I try to build a community of folks who are either our customers today or, or could be our customers in the future. So it's not that hard to be able to build, you know, a base of 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people that you're constantly talking to in one way or another that could be potential uh, candidates for you. You don't need to do a Super Bowl ad. You don't need to, you know, do mass global marketing, you know, with Google, you can, but it can be as simple as just building a base of contacts on LinkedIn and keeping your message in front of them. When it comes to your market category, how do you think about your category? Our category is changing a lot. And honestly, our category is trying to figure out what our category is. You know, it's gone by, Originally, you know, the name speech analytics, you know, then kind of shifted into conversation intelligence. And, you know, the big kind of shift there is a different user where speech analytics was a lot of data scientists and revenue operations folks who would kind of, you know, look through these massive amounts of, of data and pick out, you know, different insights from the data and put together reports. It shifted conversation intelligence to a more frontline manager user. So you didn't need to have the same amount of data savvy or be able to have technical chops in order to pull out insights. You can just do it on the conversation intelligence level. But then there started to be a new challenge, which is managers are getting these insights and they don't really know what to do with them. And you know, we identified at Balto that there was something almost called an insight backlog, which is all the things that these companies had discovered that were just sitting on the shelves and not actually being applied by the sales force or the customer service center. And you know, then there ended up being kind of this broader evolution of conversation intelligence into real-time conversation intelligence. Today, what's now happening is 
everybody is doing this race toward AI. So it's not about speech analytics. It's not about conversation intelligence. It's not about real time. It's about being able to deliver to the contact center a suite of AI technologies that allow their agents to be as effective as possible, their supervisors to be as effective as possible, their quality management team to be as effective as possible, and their leadership to be as effective as possible. You have to serve every stakeholder. You have to be focused on efficiency. You have to have more than one offering, but it also has to be real. It can't be vaporware. And that's one of the things that, you know, up until call it a year ago, very few AI companies actually had an AI product. You know, I would say most AI companies had more marketing than they did AI. And, you know, now with the evolution of chat GPT and, you know, all the different APIs and open AI and Anthropic and you know, now uh, Gemini, we're going to see AI truly everywhere. So the space is getting shaken again, and it's not necessarily conversation intelligence. So I don't know. It's up to you and it's up to me. It's up to the world to see what do we want to name this space. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised $52 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? I think the biggest thing I've learned about fundraising is that investors are people too, and that the best pitch you can give is not walking folks through a slide deck. Like if you think about someone who you meet, who you want to get excited about your podcast or a venture you might have, how do you do that? Well, often you'll sit and you'll have a cup of coffee with them or you'll have a drink with them at the bar. Or if you're on Zoom with them, you first want to understand what do they care about and not just the stock questions or that you might ask a venture capitalist around, what's your fund size? What size checks do you write? How do you like to help your, you know, your portfolio companies? What's your value add? But real questions, like real questions like, what kind of companies have you enjoyed working with the most? Like what's a board you're sitting on now, or you might not be able to talk about the board specifically. What's an example? Can you give me like a picture of a board you're sitting on where you feel like you're really able to help that company out? What's an example of like a tough situation you went through with a founder where ultimately ended up well? Like those are the sort of questions that that's why VCs wake up. That's why these investors wake up every day is because they want to build great companies alongside you know, their portfolio companies, their partners. They want to do it from a financing perspective where you know, their capital has a lot of leverage. So I think that was probably the biggest thing is to approach these pitches, not like, you know, slide one, slide two, slide three, but I'll start a Zoom and just have a normal conversation. And someone will ask a question and I'll say, oh, I actually have a slide on that. And then I'll pull up and I'll flip the slide seven and say, look, you can kind of see the data here. You can see the graph but it flows very organically. It's not like I'm you know, pitching them and at the end I am waiting for applause. Based on your entire journey, what would you say is the number one go-to-market lesson that you've learned so far? Get out in front of your customers. I think that folks are often afraid to do the grind. And remember that any sort of outcome that you want, pretty much any outcome in business, you can kind of think about as almost having like a numerator denominator, numerator number of successes or denominator number of attempts. And there's always some number of attempts where if you attempt it a thousand times or 10,000 times or a million times, that one of them will hit. You know, if you go and you ask every single millionaire in the world to invest in your startup, one of them will invest in your startup. Okay, but that's not really practical. So how do you go down a notch? How do you say, 
you know, I need my pitch to be effective enough where I want one out of 10 to hit or one out of 20 to hit. So I think that a lot of folks are afraid to do the grind because it's partially unpleasant, partially because it has a lot of rejection, but also because if you get rejected 19 times, in general, our society teaches us that that means that you should take that as a signal that you failed. And I think that the real answer is sometimes the really great things in life take 20 attempts. You know, think about like uh, the Olympics. Think about people doing some crazy gymnastic act. Like they didn't get it right on their fifth time or their eighth time. They probably got it right on their hundredth time. And I think that we have underappreciated that muscle. It's very true for go-to-market. You got to get out in front of your customers. You got to get out in front of the market. You got to make the ask. You got to make the pitches. And when you do enough pitches, you will get yeses. The trick then is to be able to improve your ratio of yeses to no's. Final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? Well, three to five years, the world is going to be very, very different than it is today. I have a bit of a controversial stance on it. I think AGI will exist, artificial general intelligence, which is basically AI that is as smart or as capable as a human in as many domains as a human would participate in. So the AI is as good at math as a person is, the AI is is good at writing as a person is, the AI is as good at music and art as a person is. And I think that, to be honest, we might already have that today. Like how many people can write as good as ChatGPT can write? How many people can create art as good as Dolly can create or Midjourney? I don't know many people that can. So I think we're actually very, very close to artificial intelligence being as capable or more capable than a human being. And that essentially takes the labor force and turns it from the United States, I think where it's 140 or 150 million to infinite. You can scale up and down workers with the push of a button, up and down human level intelligence workers. I think we're going to be there in the next three to five years. So what does that mean when your workforce is unlimited? You don't have to wait for someone to get born or to immigrate or to pull them back into the workforce if they retired or back in the workforce if you know, they were you know, taking a few years you know, off being a, a first time or a, a recurring parent. It's gonna be a really crazy world. So what Balto is thinking about is what is the relationship that people will have with technology in those three to five years? Where will technology be totally autonomous and that's the best experience that it can give someone? And where will a person still be operating in a role, probably out of desire, not out of necessity, because an AI would be able to do that function. But maybe there's places where we want a person versus AI, simply because we want something or someone to connect to and we feel like we connect inherently to our fellow people. So we're asking, how can we help those people be as effective as humanly possible? And we say tongue in cheek, more effective than humanly possible. Where can we give people capabilities that you'd have to be a superhuman to have? You know, superhuman memory, superhuman information retrieval, superhuman accuracy in answering questions, superhuman persuasion skills and prediction skills. Those are the sort of things that we want to equip people with. So we keep this place in the workforce for, you know, talented, passionate people because we will be competing with AI soon. And we'd like to have AI augmenting people's abilities, not just replacing them. I love the vision. It's a little bit scary to think about the world that we're going to be living in, but certainly sounds exciting. Mark, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. 
Before we do, if there's any founders listening in that want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? You can find me on linkedin.com slash in slash Balto CEO. Name is Mark Bernstein, or you can find Balto at balto.ai. Awesome. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, Brett. You too. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Oh,